Homeland Security Department has a new plan to make sure federal contractors are following cybersecurity requirements. But DHS is taking a different approach than the Pentagon's Cybersecurity Maturity Model Certification, or CMMC, program. We get more now from Federal News Network's Justin Doubleday. And tell us about this plan. What do we know about DHS's plan that seems to sound like it's solving the same problem the Pentagon says it has? Right. Well, DHS plans to publish a final rule soon, potentially next month, for how contractors should safeguard sensitive information that they get in the performance of a contract. And and DHS has spent the past year conducting what they call pathfinders with different subsets of its industrial base to really test out a method for ensuring companies are meeting cyber hygiene standards that are already in their contracts. They just don't have any way of really checking that right now. And so DHS actually came up with a self-assessment questionnaire that it's been using with some contractors. It's geared at measuring whether companies are following these 2015 standards. Ken Bible, DHS's chief information security officer, says the work has convinced DHS it can actually use the approach more broadly. So we were able to actually take a statistically relevant subset of the contracts uh, using not self-attestation, but a a self-survey and actually use statistical means to say, did that give us a valid uh, assessment of the maturity of our vendor base? We're gaining more and more confidence that, yeah, we could. And so now we're looking at what do we do with that with respect to prior to award? That's Ken Bible, CISO at the Department of Homeland Security, explaining its contractor cybersecurity plan. And that sounds like a lot simpler and quite different from CMMC, which has, frankly, a lot of apparatus around it. That's right. So so obviously the Pentagon is using a third-party certification program where contractors who want to win a defense contract would have to bring in a third-party company to evaluate their cybersecurity program to make sure that they're following these standards. What DHS is doing here is really just sending them some sort of self-survey. We actually haven't seen that publicly, but they're sending them a self-survey to ensure that they're actually following those standards. And DOD and DHS actually require their contractors to use the same NIST standards to protect sensitive information. It's just different approaches that are coming out in terms of how they're checking that. And do we know why DHS came to the conclusion that it simply didn't want to follow the same path as CMMC? Well, DHS was paying close attention to what DOD was doing with CMMC, of course. They use a lot of the same companies, as you can imagine. DHS actually put out a notice last year stating it was tracking the progress of the CMMC program. And a lot of people took that to mean that DHS might adopt it in some form or fashion. But through these pathfinders, DHS really found that it would be too onerous to force many of its industry partners to go out and get a third-party cyber certification prior to pursuing a contract award. That's kind of why DOD actually ratcheted down its own program a little bit. But Ken Bible says that small businesses are far too important to DHS for them to make them jump through these hoops. And what we realized was that If we took just the approach of saying, hey, go, you get yourself a third-party assessment and come to the table for a a contract, we were disadvantaging a significant part of the DHS industry base because DHS leverages small business Mm -hmm. quite a bit. And, of course, there's also the issue of the large contractors, say a company like Lidos, 
which may go through CMMC at some point and get whatever third-party assessment it has to get. But then that ought to be good enough for DHS, which also uses Lidos for various projects. Yeah, DHS is really taking a lighter-touch approach. So if a, if a company like Lidos has to go through a DOD certification, which if DOD's program comes to fruition, that's a big if, uh, then, then they <laughs> most certainly will, then DHS can kind of can most likely rest on that certification uh, as proof that they're following the standards. Yeah, sort of a FedRAMP approach. Well, it's good enough for them. I can use it too. And right. so what are the takeaways for contractors? This plan is out. It's published. It's not a final rule yet, but you said that's coming shortly. Yeah, that's right. Well, the, the devil will be in the details. This final rule will, will tell us a lot more about what exactly DHS's plan is here. As you heard from Ken Bible, they're, they're using self-surveys, not self-attestation, which has kind of been the baseline where contractors would check the box and say, yes, we're following these standards. And most agencies would take that a, as proof. There are a lot of other civilian agencies considering approaches to supply chain cybersecurity. So now that we have two of the largest agencies really coming out with not so much competing approaches, but different approaches, these other agencies and, and contractors who work for them will be closely following the DHS rule to see, see how that proceeds. And, you know, DHS's plan really shows that cyber supply chain security concerns are, are really not unique to just DOD. It's a, it's a government-wide concern. But the thing is, do you require third-party attestation or do you stick with some sort of self-survey? Bible really even teased that out in his address that, that we were using earlier, kind of teasing out the big question about DHS's approach going forward. That's really kind of the real question is, can we take that technique and extend it so that we're able to go not use a self-attestation but use a self-assessment to gauge the cyber maturity of a vendor and make that a criteria by which we would select for an award. And interestingly, Ken Bible keeps saying it. He said it twice in this particular speech that you were quoting from, not self-attestation, but a self-survey. And, you know, I wonder if that means there is less legal repercussion for what you say on that survey than if you a test, because a test sounds like testify, as if you're under oath. Could that be what's going on? It'll be interesting to find out. Again, we need to see that final rule in terms of the actual acquisition regulation that DHS is working with here. But it's a great point. He does really try to draw that line between attestation and a self-survey. And, you know, DOD has found that they need to give a little bit of leeway. The CMMC program will now allow contractors to defer some cyber requirements as long as they're not deferring, you know, all of them, as long as they have a plan to one day make up those requirements during the performance of, of the contract. So there's some need for flexibility here. And the big question it, for, for any agency, not just DHS and DOD, is how much flexibility do you give contractors? And what are the consequences if what they say in a survey or a non-attestation is, turns out not to be the case? Should an incident occur, you know, what are the consequences? And that's unknown Exactly. Yet. And by the way, this rule has been out for comments and now it's about to be reissued or what's the precise status of it? It actually, there, there was an initially a notice of proposed rulemaking issued back in 2017. Oh, so DHS has plenty of time to comment, huh? Yeah, exactly. D DHS has not put a whole lot out since then. They've been lapped by DOD uh, with the CMMC program, essentially. And now they're coming back around here in 2022 
saying they're going to publish a final rule. That's according to the unified agenda, which isn't always, you know, the exact accurate indication of what exactly is going to happen. But a final rule of some sort is most likely coming and it's going to be interesting to watch out for. So coming in within the next fiscal, say, after September? The unified agenda says as soon as September. Uh, So it could be within the next few weeks. So we'll see. All right. Well, we know you'll let us know when it does happen. Federal News Network's Justin Doubleday. Thanks so much. All right. You got it, Tom. And check out his story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. After an exemplary career as a former executive at the FBI, focused on policy and strategy, Sasha O'Connell, Ph.D., is guiding future federal leaders as the executive in residence in the School of Public Affairs at American University. Sasha joins host Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, to discuss her exciting career, the future of the federal workforce, and the lessons she's learned along the way. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, and today I'm thrilled to be joined by Sasha O'Connell. Sasha is an executive in residence in the Department of Justice, Law, and Criminology at the School of Public Affairs at American University and spent the majority of her career at the FBI and most recently as the organization's chief policy advisor, science and technology and the Section Chief of Office and Policy for the FBI's Deputy Director. Sasha, welcome. Jane, thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure. Can you give us an example of someone early in your career that motivated you? And then, and, and how did, what did that look like? Sure, absolutely. So it sounds almost cliche, but it was the dining room table. So I grew up um, with a stepfather who spent 30 years at the Veterans Administration at the VA. And he talked at the dinner table. He started as a social worker and then sort of rose up into management, administration, and leadership. And his stories, right, and his approach really, really impacted me. My mom, interestingly, ended up in a career in public service. She was a prosecutor. She's currently a retired state superior court judge. Um, But she had a big career change also in her 40s. She went back to law school in her 40s. So getting all of that in the mix at a young age at the dinner table really, really impacted me um, in really specific ways. Yeah, that's amazing. My my father was part of um, the generation that took um, President Kennedy's call to action. And he took that to heart, and he went and worked at the Department of Interior and a number of other places in federal service. So it's, it's catching when, when you're around it. You've held a number of leadership roles at the FBI, which is historically a male-dominated organization. What skills or traits helped you most as you navigated that? It's such a, it's an interesting and challenging yeah. sort of situation and question. One, I don't think I still am reflecting on. I've been out of the FBI about six years and I'm sort of still thinking about it. I think the bottom line was when I was there and I really grew up there, um, I, didn't, I didn't know any different. I grew up with male cousins and brothers and, you know, it was sort of a continuation of, of my existence. So it did, you know, in retrospect, it, it was a really unique situation, but it didn't necessarily feel that way for me at the time. I think staying mission-focused, staying not about me, staying flexible in terms of problem-solving all helped me. I will say there's resources today that weren't there when I was there, or certainly when I was starting out. There's a lot of affinity groups for women in national security, women in federal law enforcement. And I will say I think I would have really benefited from access to those kind of resources as I was coming up. 
Um, I had both incredible mentors, men and women, um, women across the organization who I became very close with, who were incredible supports, not just getting the job and starting out, but sort of matriculating through. But again, I'm really sort of proud of and involved in some of the work of those external organizations that bring women across government, um, executive women in government, and those kind of organizations together, because I think it is really, really helpful um, as one moves through. Yeah, we we actually work with a, a number of those too, and and go to their events and conferences and support them because it's important. How has your leadership style developed or changed over the years? Well, I think I've gotten a little more confident in it. Right, the seeds were there at that dining room table. One thing um, that carried through that I learned from my stepdad was to focus on the process. He would talk at dinner about big ideas or big changes and how to get from here to there was part of his day job, something he thought about explicitly, was getting other people on board, getting that stakeholder engagement, getting other people to think it was their idea if that was required. And that's something I started out with as a gift, right, that kind of approach. And then I got confidence in that, and then I added things. I will say, as I moved on, my appreciation for taking care of is maybe the wrong word, but really focusing on the people who work with you and for you in some instances um, you know, making sure that they have what they need to be successful in a tactical way. But then also something I definitely learned at the FBI as I went along is, you know, the importance of creating an environment that is supportive and inspiring. You know, we joke about it, but food has played a pretty serious role um, in my leadership style over time. Um, I learned from great mentors. I worked with Bill Estevez at the FBI who had a full-scale cappuccino maker at his cubicle, right, and would host coffee hour, and you'd see the steam rising across the cubicles. Um, I worked with a, a great friend who used to carry hot frittatas for breakfast celebrations or on, the, on the metro, right, in one of those sort of coolie bags. Um, and so I've sort of, I think it's been additive in terms of learning, gaining confidence in my approach, and then adding these pieces as I go that I've certainly learned from mentors and colleagues. And clearly you never let anything get in your way. You were mission focused, as you mentioned, and you just got the job done no matter what was in front of you. Well, I wish, I wish, and it was, it was that easy. I mean, I think we had a lot of success. Um, one thing has always been my approach when starting out as a leader, too, is to solve near-term problems. I always say sort of deliver short, and then you can push them long, right? So we've, we don't always succeed in those long-term goals or those, you know, sort of blue-sky ideas as leaders we want to achieve. Um, but we deliver on those short-term pieces, right? And you get that buy-in from the stakeholders. And then often you can push toward those bigger dreams, hopes, aspirations, and goals, um, I would like to say I was 100% on both fronts. <laughs> I'm not sure your characterization is 100% accurate there, but I'll take it um, in, this, in this sense. Looking back, what, what's one piece of advice you might have given your younger self when you first started? Yeah, it's, it's interesting today, too, working with students, I get that chance, right, to give my essentially my younger self um, advice every day. And one thing we talk a lot about, and I wish I had thought more explicitly about, is really, it's about calibration, right? And so I always think Emeril Lagasse would say, like, a stove has dials for a reason, right? It's not like all hot or all cold. And I think it's the same here. In some ways in my career, I had to learn to tone it down, right? And to, you know, certainly at the FBI, sometimes you need to take that backseat at a meeting and wait to be invited to the table. And that's really the appropriate way to build rapport, relationships, and trust. Other times, I needed to learn to tune it up, right, to up the volume a little bit. Um, I had a wonderful boss, Dave Schlendorf, who we were in a meeting together with big bosses at the FBI once, and I was working for Dave. 
And we left the meeting and we were walking back to the office and I made a point. I don't even remember what the point was now. And he stopped in the hall and said, why didn't you say that in the meeting? You're not helping me, right? Telling me this now. Now I have to go back and fix this. And I realized, so, well, sometimes you have to tone it down. Sometimes you have to tone it up. And that modulation, that sort of volume control about when to lean in and out, if you will, um, that's, you know, even just thinking about that explicitly for folks starting out, I think is really helpful because it's not one size fits all. Right. I, I totally agree and understand that it isn't one size fits all. And a lot of leadership is described in bumper stickers, sayings, and I don't think that's realistic. I think it's situationally dependent, and you have to be self-aware and aware of your circumstances to adjust. That's well said. You're training the next generation, or helping to train them, federal leaders through AU's School of Public Affairs. How, how do we encourage, how do you encourage young people to answer the call of federal service? You know, I'm so lucky at AU. We, we draw in, right, students who are primed for this um, and who are passionate when they walk in our doors. Even with that population, you know, there, there are headwinds, right? USA Jobs, right? just even getting educated, these pieces. So, so helping with that is a whole set of work. I'm also really passionate about, as you point out, reaching out to a diversity of folks who haven't even thought about these careers as careers. I had a conversation with a young woman the other day, and she was talking about law school. It's, I'm, I'm fully supportive of law school. And I said, have you ever thought about a career in, in federal service? And she said, uh, isn't that for old people? I said, uh, <laughs> um, okay, so, you know, I mean, there's an education to do, right? Clearly, she's never seen the softball leagues, you know, down on the mall or kickball or any of the fun we all have in town where we certainly did when we were younger. But I, I really try, again, podcasts like this and other venues to put myself out there and really talk about what it's like, the opportunities I had at the FBI to be in the middle of the mission space and to explain that the federal government needs all kinds of skills, right? And diversity of thought, right, and diversity of people. So so there's that sort of working with the group that's primed for us, and we need to help them get over those barriers, get in and then stay, and stay um, engaged and passionate. And then there's reaching those new audiences. And there's a lot of work both places, but it's a lot of fun to work with young folks who are passionate about it. So I'm really lucky in my current job. And career civil service is a great path if somebody wants to take it. Our board is 100% SES-level career civil servants. They are all dedicated. They have a real passion for what they're doing. They could go work anywhere, but they choose federal service. And there's no place, I always tell young folks who ask me about it, there's no place you're going to get the level of responsibility quickly as you do in federal service, right? And, and yes, yeah, sometimes things move slow. It's supposed to move slow, right? We talk about the reasons for that, too. But there's, there's really no other industry, maybe some startups you might get this experience, but really where you can be in the middle of mission space, whether you're passionate about the environment or national security or health care, you know, public health, and you're going to get in there quickly, um, and you're going to get in the mix and get exposure, experience, and opportunity for impact that's really unlike any other career. Perfect. Well, thank you, Sasha, and thanks to everyone for listening. I'm Shane Canfield, and this has been the Lessons in Leadership podcast. Talk to you next time. 
Reconnect with a carpool or van pool. Even if you're commuting just a few days a week, Commuter Connections can match you with others that live and work near or at the same place as you. Prefer taking the bus or train? There's never been a better time to reconnect with transit. Plus, you have the added comfort of knowing Guaranteed Ride Home is there for any unexpected emergency for free. For more options, visit commuterconnections.org or call 1-800-745-RIDE. Some restrictions apply.